We're continuing our series called Songs of Our Savior, which is looking at the background and theological uh, foundations and biblical foundations of some of the songs um, that we love around this time of the year. And last week and this week, we're looking at Oh Holy Night, which I think is maybe the best song ever written, in my opinion. We did a little online survey on Instagram. It's like, how many of you like Oh Holy Night? And 3% of the people put um, no. Now, I don't get that. I just think that means you're not safe. But anyway, that we, um, I don't know how, I don't know how you don't like the song. It's, it's one of the greatest articulations of the gospel and of the heart of Christmas that I've ever heard. God has used it so many times over the years to bring me to a place of worship at this time of year. And uh, last week, we looked at the first verse. It says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And I talked about last week the effects of sin on our lives and talked about how uh, one of the ways that sin impacts us is it makes us feel a sense of hopelessness. It gives us a sense of weariness and it makes us feel a sense of worthlessness and how that first Christmas night 2,000 years ago, maybe more than any other event in human history showed you and I how much value we have to God. Now today, we're gonna look at the second verse of Oh Holy Night. And, um, and while the first verse focuses on how the birth of Christ impacted our relationship with God, what the second verse of Oh Holy Night does is talk about how the birth of Christ impacts our relationship with one another, which is something we don't often think about that's an impact of Christmas, but that's what we're gonna look at today. So let's jump in together. It's still, this first line there is still talking about a relationship with God. Um, I'm gonna read it to you, then explain it a little bit. It's truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Now, before I explain what that means, I wanna say this. That, that phrase right there, look at the bottom. His law is love and his gospel is peace might be one of the best, most theologically accurate one sentence articulations of the gospel I have ever heard in my life. And as I was preparing for this, it sort of hit me because I talked about last week that it was written by a uh, non-believing French winemaker in 1847. I read that sentence, his law is love and the gospel is peace. And it hit me, there is no way that a non-believing French winemaker poet guy wrote that line. It's too theologically precise. And so I looked it up, did some research, and turns out I was right. Um, after it was written in 1847 by the non-believing French poet dude, um, the song was translated into English in 1855 by an American pastor named John Sullivan Dwight. And when he translated it, he added several lines. So I am guessing that is one of them. And I'm glad he did, because over the years, I've really grown to love and appreciate the second verse of O Holy Night. Because guys, when Christmas time rolls around, it's one of the times we start thinking about the names of Jesus. Because so many of the Old Testament prophecies are about the Messiah and what he'll be called and that sort of thing. And when Christmas, times, Christmas time rolls around, what is the one name of Christ that we have a tendency to focus on more than any other name. Somebody shout it out. Emmanuel, that's right. That's the name we think about more than any other this time of year. God with us. That the Lord put on our flesh and he came to us. But there's another name 
of Christ that we don't think about as much and that we don't preach on as often or think about as often. And that is the name of Christ, which is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. That's uh, that word prince there. It means administrator. That Jesus is the administrator. He's the author. He's the bringer of peace to us. And so Jesus being the Prince of Peace is what the second verse is talking about here uh, today. So let's unpack it together. Let's start at that first part of the sentence. Sorry, I'm coughing today. I've got allergies going on. I, I apologize. I feel great just coughing a lot. But anyway, um, it says, truly, he taught us to love one another. Truly, he taught us to love one another. That's a really simple, but really profound phrase that Jesus taught us to one, uh, love one another. And here's why. Because the Jewish re- religious leaders of the time had made following God um, all about a list of rules and regulations. The Jewish re- religious leaders made following God all about a list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs. And if you followed them, God was pleased with you. And if you didn't follow them, God wasn't pleased with you. And Jesus comes along and he says, boys, you're completely missing the heart of God on all of this. They asked him, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, here's the most important commandment, that you love God, that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this one's just important. He said, and you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so truly, truly, Jesus was the one that taught us to love one another. And so this next line is where I think it it, it starts getting theologically rich. Watch what it says. It says, truly he taught us to love one another. And then it says, his law is love. Now guys, what in the world does that mean? That his law is love. Because the law, God's law, and the Ten Commandments, those don't feel like love, do they? They feel like a list of rules. They feel like a list of regulations. They, they feel like a list of do's and don'ts that we keep messing up on. So how is the law love? Well, I'll explain it to you. Last week, we talked about how the Ten Commandments and the law was God's way of saying, this is my standard of holiness. The Ten Commandments and the law was God's way of saying, this is the standard of holiness that I want you to attain. God said, I'm holy, I want you to be holy. But what happened after God gave the law? We realized pretty quickly that you and I couldn't follow the law. God gave us the Ten Commandments and the law and we realized pretty quickly that none of us really had the ability to meet God's standard. We we always fell short of God's standard. That's why the scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now listen carefully. So the writers of the New Testament explained to us what the purpose of the law was. And so they said that the purpose of the law, listen, was not to produce in us holiness, but the purpose of the law was to reveal to us just how unholy we are. The law did not produce righteousness in us, but our inability to follow the law revealed to us our absolute inability to be righteous on our own. And so how is revealing to us that we can't meet God's standard and how is revealing to us just how unholy we are loving? How is that loving? Now here's the answer and I want everybody to listen to me. Because when it hits you like a ton of bricks, when it dawns on you that no matter how hard I try, no matter how much I pull up my bootstraps and do my best, but I still can't meet God's standards of holiness. What does that do? What does it do? 
When, when, when it hits you like a ton of bricks, no matter how hard I try, I can't meet God's standard. What that does is it makes you aware of your need for a Savior. It makes you aware of your need for a Savior. Which is exactly what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7.18. So if you've got a Bible, turn there really quickly. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh... For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. How many of y'all is that comforting? The Apostle Paul, for crying out loud, just said, I have a desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I say, amen, Paul, I've been there. Look at verse 7 and 19. Paul said, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's a comforting verse in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, for crying out loud, he's like, hey, I'm not doing the good that I want to do. I'm actually doing the evil that I don't want to do. And then in verse 22, he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that's his body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so here's what Paul just said. Paul just said, hey, I love the law. I love God's law. And everything within me desires to follow God's law. But no matter how hard I try, I can't do it. Now, I want you to watch with that realization that he did not have the ability in and of himself to follow the law. I want you to watch what that does and what that produces in him. He's like, no matter how I try, I can't do it. I can't follow the law. And then verse, 27, or verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me who will save me from this body of sin and death Paul said I know the law I love the law but no matter how I try it I can't follow the law so he cries out in desperation I need someone outside of myself to come and to save me from this body of sin and death so over and over and over again The scripture tells us that God gave us the law. He gave us the 10 commandments so that we would realize that we cannot follow it. And when we realize, everybody look at me. And when it hits you that you can't follow the law, when it hits you that wretched man am I who will save me from this body of sin and death, when it hits you that no matter how hard I try, you can't do it. What that does is that turns your gaze to to, to Christ your savior, the one that came and fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law so that you would turn to him to save you and to forgive you of the sin that he bought when he died on a cross, paying the penalty for all the law you broke. The law points us to our desperate need for Jesus. And that is the most loving thing God could ever do. His law is love. That's what it means. Ain't no French poet guy wrote that. That's an American wrote that. His law is love. That's American right there. All right, here we go. I'm joking. That's uh, Hebrew, actually. And so uh, his law is love. And then it says his gospel is peace. And again, that's one of the people ask me all the time as a pastor when I go to conferences and do question and answer and stuff. They're like, give us a one sentence articulation of the gospel. I I think I'm going to answer it with this statement here. His law is love, but his gospel is peace. And so when you realize 
that no matter how hard you try, you will never follow the law and meet his standards. And you, get, you say, hey, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? And you turn to Jesus and you beg him to save you. That in that moment, you are reconciled back into a relationship with God that you were created for. And the scripture says that when we were once enemies, now we are at peace with our heavenly father. That's exactly what Paul said. Romans 7, 24, watch this. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Now that line right there, it speaks to the reality that the first Christmas night that the coming of Christ ushered in our ability to be at peace with God. But what the next line does is it talks about something that's equally as powerful as that first Christmas night ushered in our ability to be at peace with one another, which is something we desperately need, okay? Um, I want you to watch what it says here. It says, truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. And then watch the next line there. It says, chains Shall he break, for the slave is our brother. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And I love that line. I love that line because it reminds us that Jesus Christ is not just a sin forgiver, but Jesus Christ is a chain breaker. And some of us need to hear that today. Before I sort of unpack that, that Jesus is a chain breaker, I want you to think of for a second about how powerful and how profound that line was in the time it was written. Um, Do you remember when it was written? 1855. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. That line was written in 1855. What's powerful and significant about the fact that was written in 1855? That's a few years before 1861, which is the United States Civil War. It hit me that that line changed Shall he break for the slave is our brother. That that line was written when there were millions of people literally still bound in the physical chains of slavery in our country. And that was the context that guy wrote that. Chains shall he break because the slave is our brother. And the author of O Holy Night, when he wrote that, he was speaking about a, a truth that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Galatians 3 that, that hadn't really quite sunk in yet to the southern United States in 1855. And uh, let me read it to you, Galatians 3, 27. Paul says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. Now that we say amen because that's what it's like here. Back in 1855, that wasn't the case. And back in when Paul originally wrote those words, that wasn't the case. Paul wrote those words in a society where slaves weren't considered human beings, they were considered property. Paul wrote those words in a society where women were not considered equals as men. men. They were considered to be second-class citizens. And Paul's point is when Jesus came to this planet, all that changed. All that changed. In Christ, there is no slave. There is no free. In Christ, there is no male and female because in Christ, we're all equal. 
In Christ, we are all the same. In Christ, we are all co-heirs of salvation. In Christ, we are all created in the image of God. And in Christ, we are brothers and we are sisters in the family of God. Chains shall he break for the slave is your brother. He's your brother. And guess what? That song wasn't very popular back in the U.S. in uh, 1855 in the southern states because that song reminded folks of this biblical truth that because of the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that man bound in chains in our country was not your property, but he is your brother in Jesus Christ. And he's gonna be a co-heir of salvation with you. I'm gonna talk about something for a second that may get me in trouble outside the walls of this church, but I don't care. And uh, y'all will learn that about me. But um, there's a phrase going around in secular circles right now, I'm hearing it a lot non-believing circles, talking about the culture. And it's a phrase in reference to African-Americans who were in slavery um, in the U.S., but that became Christians while they were still in slavery. And the phrase is that Christianity is a white man's religion and that the slaves in the U.S. had the white man's religion forced upon them. Um, Guys, Christianity being a white man's religion might be the single dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, I'm going to give you four quick reasons why. Four quick reasons why that Christianity is not a white man's religion. First of all, newsflash for you, Jesus ain't white. He's a dark-skinned Jew from the Middle East, and he's my savior. Um, second, the majority, the majority, the overwhelming majority of Christians in, in the world are not white. They're Asian, and they're Indian, and they're South American, and they're Iranian, and they're Middle Eastern. Third, the scripture says that people are gonna follow Christ from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, which, newsflash, are mostly not white, right? Fourth is, uh, I wrote a book. Um, It's several years ago, I wrote a book called Steal Away Home. It's a true story about a slave from Virginia. His name is Thomas Johnson. And he became a Christian when he was still on the plantation. And I learned everything I learned from his autobiography from his own words. And what I learned, um, and what he rather, what he said about his salvation is that his salvation had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with a white man and had everything to do with the fact that he encountered Jesus and it radically changed his entire life. It's called Steal Away Home. It's a book about the story. I'd never heard the story before. We kind of stumbled upon it about how Thomas Johnson spent 28 years of his life as a slave, was freed, and... Um, ended up getting saved on the plantation, left through a crazy uh, set of events, became friends with Charles Spurgeon, the famous pastor in England, went and was educated at Spurgeon's College in England, and then Spurgeon um, sent him and Thomas's wife, Henrietta, to, to Africa to become a missionary in Africa. It's an incredible, incredible story. And here's what I learned. Again, Thomas was born on a plantation, and, and at 10 years old, his Master, his earthly master took his mother away from him and sold him to another plantation and it absolutely devastated him. She was the only person in the world that loved him. He spent the first 28 years of his life in slavery, horrible conditions. Um, He was at times literally put in physical chains. He was mercilessly whipped and beaten, worked in horrible conditions. And by the time he was in his late teens, when he still was not a believer, there were two things true about his life. Number one, 
is he absolutely hated his master. He hated him. He loathed him. He wished for the guy's death. He, uh, he was a human being. He had hopes. He had dreams. He had fears. He loved. He hurt. He wept. He had feelings. And here was this white guy that looked at him as property and had absolute control over his life, and he hated the guy. The other thing was true is that he absolutely hated being a slave to the core of his being. He hated it. To the point, he hated it so much that he admitted that he spent the majority of his childhood and teenage years and young manhood fantasizing and dreaming about how to, how to escape from the plantation. But the only reason he never did is because he had seen God try to escape before and he realized that, that the ones that did and were caught were beaten to death to be an example to the other slaves so they wouldn't do it again. Thomas wrote in his autobiography that the, the owner of the plantation called him master, the owner of the plantation um, actually owned a Bible and went to church pretty regularly. And um, he talked about how the master knew what the scripture said about slaves and being one with us and slaves being our brother. And so he would not, the master would not allow his slaves to worship or read the scripture on his plantation. He refused it. Well, a few of the slaves on the plantation were actually Christians. He never said how they became Christians. One of them had a Bible that he hid from the master and Without the master knowing it, they would sneak out. The slaves would sneak out on Sunday night under the cover of darkness. And they would all go into one of the slaves' quarters and they would have a little quiet worship service. And they would sing worship songs in a whisper. It's a really cool part of the story. They would sing these whispering worship songs. And then one guy that had the Bible would stand up and he would preach in a whisper. Through a series of events, Thomas Johnson ended up going to one of these whispering worship services one night and he sat there and he listened to the gospel of Christ for the first time and the slave that was preaching began to speak and said these words. I'm just gonna read it to you. He said, some of you picked tobacco today. Some of you washed dishes and clothes today. A couple of you even took a whipping from the foreman today. And you might be thinking to yourself, I ain't ever gonna get out of this place. I ain't ever gonna know what it's like to be a free man or a free woman. Some of you have been thinking, I ain't ever gonna know what it's like to do what I wanna do or go where I wanna go. And truth be told, the bad news is that might never change. You and me, we may live our whole lives in these chains, but the good news is that you can be free, really free, right here, right now, no matter what kind of change you're carrying with you. And that statement right there got Thomas's attention. You may be bound in chains, but you can be free. No matter, no matter what kind of change you're carrying. He said it got his attention and as he sat there barely breathing, it was like he was hearing a secret that was being revealed to him for the first time in his life. And the preacher paused and looked directly at Thomas and said, your body may never be free, but Jesus sets slaves like us free. He may never get you off this plantation he may not take the chains off your hands and feet, but Jesus will do something better. He will take the chains off your heart. Thomas gave his life to Jesus and it completely and profoundly and utterly changed his life. Thomas described that moment like this. He said, that was the moment that Jesus found me. I love that. He would say, I didn't find Jesus. I wasn't even looking for him. He found me. And when, when Jesus found Thomas, two 
things happened that were utterly miraculous. Thomas talked about it. He said the first miraculous thing was that he suddenly realized that he no longer hated his master. God just completely took his hate away. God took the chains of his hate away from Thomas's heart. And the second thing that Thomas realized, and this, this is incredible, after his salvation, and these are exact words, Thomas said that in the moment Jesus found me, while I still longed for physical freedom, I found a freedom in my heart, a freedom that no earthly master could ever take away. That's the gospel. Thomas Johnson was eventually freed at the Emancipation Proclamation, became a pastor in Chicago at Providence Baptist Church, which still stands to this day. Got a call from them one day. They said, hey, we just read your book. That's incredible. We had no idea Thomas Johnson was a pastor at our church. It was incredible. And he, again, makes his way to England, was educated at Spurgeon's College, became personal friends with Charles Haddon Dadgum Spurgeon, which was maybe the most famous preacher in the world at that time. And then, again, sent him and his wife um, to Africa. And Thomas ended up witnessing to the king of Cameroon. It's an incredible story. Sage, my Christianity is not a white man's religion. It's not a white man's religion. Uh, Christianity is about a relationship. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ who came to this planet to find people of every color that are bound in spiritual and physical chains and set them free in a way that nobody could ever have possibly imagined, which by the way is exactly what Jesus said he would do. In Luke 4, 16, don't turn there. I just want you to listen. This is one of my favorite parts of scripture. I love it. Talking about Jesus said it, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and was with, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed. And I love this next part. I could have just ended it there and moved on, but this is too cool. It says, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me tell you why that's cool. Why I love that so much. He just goes to the synagogue, opens the scroll, go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah where it prophesied about the Messiah. The Messiah would come. Proclaim liberty to the captives, set free all who are oppressed. He reads it. He sits down. Everybody's looking at him. And he says, oh, yeah, by the way, that what Isaiah was talking about, that's me. And he drops the mic. And then 2,000 years later, on a plantation in Richmond, Virginia, and a million other places all over the world, including this very room, that is exactly what Jesus did, and it's what he does, and it's what he always will do until the day he returns and ends all oppression and hatred and grief and strife and suffering forever. And with that in mind, look at the last part of the verse. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all, Oppression shall cease. That's the aspect of Christmas I'd never thought about before. And I want you to let this hit you today. In his name, there's coming a day when all oppression will stop. 
what hit me that I've never thought about before is Christmas night, that first Christmas night was the beginning of the end of all oppression. Christmas night was the beginning of the end of slavery. That first Christmas night was the beginning of the end of war. Christmas night was the beginning of the end of abortion. Christmas night was the beginning of the end of the plight of the widow and the orphan. That first Christmas night was the beginning of the end of divorce and abuse and murder and adultery and cancer and racism and suffering and death. There's coming a day when in his name all oppression will cease. There's been one time in my life where I've gotten a glimpse of that day, that day when he returns to us, the second advent, and all oppression ceases. Got a little glimpse of it one day. It was back in 1996 at a Promise, promise Keepers event in Georgia, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, in the Georgia Dome. Y'all remember Promise Keepers? Anybody been around long enough, Promise Keepers? The movement of God. This is a pastor's Promise Keepers. So there were 60,000 pastors and um, it was one of the most amazing times of worship in my life. 60,000 pastors singing holy, holy, holy at the same time was pretty powerful. Pastors of all races and, and backgrounds and coming together worshiping him, it was powerful. I believe it was Tony Evans who was preaching. Never heard Tony, he makes me look like a rookie, like an amateur, a man can sling it. And uh, he was talking, he was speaking about the beauty of the fact that 60,000 pastors, all of different races and Colors and creeds and ethnicities were all in one room worshiping the Lord together. And he asked us to do something. I'll never forget it. It was a beautiful scene. He said, I want you to grab somebody that's of a different color than you, different background than you. And I just want you to pray together. That's it. There was a, a black guy that was sitting right down in front of me and we kind of made eye contact and, and let's do this. And we, we talked for a second and got just spent a minute getting to know each other. And then, and then after we talked for a minute, we began to pray together. I don't remember how long we prayed together, but at the time, by the time we said amen, we both stood up and both of us were crying. And we hugged each other. We said, I love you, brother. I love you, brother. And I, and I looked around across the George Dome, 60,000 people, all these different colors, and that scene right there was happening all over the Georgia Dome. White men weeping, embracing and praying with black men. African-American men weeping, embracing Hispanic men. Hispanic men weeping and embracing Asian men. And this thought literally came, as my preacher talking, I literally thought this thought as I'm looking around, tears coming down my face, all these people of all these different ethnicities crying and hugging and praying. And what went through my mind was this, is that what is happening right now has been tried by men and failed for centuries. And it's happening because of one reason, and that's Jesus Christ. I was like, Jesus is the only one. He's the only one that could do this. And I think the reason we were all crying is because we were getting a little glimpse of a day that's to come when in the name of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, all oppression will stop forever. We were getting a little picture of it. And I wanna, I wanna land the plane today with this. I just want us to think about, how does this apply to us? You know what I mean? Because the truth is, most of us will never be in physical chains. But the reality is, there's a lot of us in this room that are probably bound in some spiritual ones today. Some of you are bound in the chains of addiction. And no matter how hard you try, you can't break it. Some of you are bound in the chains of sexual sin. 
and you know it's wrong. You love God, but you're bound and you can't get out of them. Some of you are bound in chains that you didn't even realize it was a chain, like love of money or pride or selfishness, bitterness, unforgiveness. You've got this person in your life and they hurt you and you just can't forgive them no matter how much you think about how Christ has forgiven you. You can't get to the place where you can forgive them and that's a chain that's holding you back. Some of you are bound in the chains of depression, anxiety, fear. Some of you are bound in the chains of anger and resentment. And guys, if that's you, I wanna tell you something. If that's you today, I want you to know you're not alone. You're not alone. All of us are in some shape, form, or fashion bound in the chains of this fallen world. But if that's you, I wanna remind you of something today that this book says over and over again. If that's you, I wanna remind you that Jesus Christ is a chain breaker. That's what he does. That's what he came to do. Jesus said, that's the reason God sent me, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set free all those who are oppressed. And so if you're carrying those chains of oppression today, I want you to pick them up and I want you to bring them to Jesus because he and he alone has the power to break those chains and set you free. He did it in Thomas Johnson's life. He's done it in my life. He's done it in dozens of people's lives in this room. They could raise their hand and say, yep, I remember the time Jesus set me free and he can do it for you. And I'll end with this. It hit me that there's probably one, there's probably a lot of us in here that are like, man, I don't, I'm not really bound by any of those chains. I'm doing really good, Matt. But it hit me, there's one chain that all of us are facing. There's one oppressor that everybody in this room is looking at and it's looming over us like a dark cloud and that is the oppressor of death. Jesus ultimately defeated him at the resurrection, but it's still something, it's an oppressor that all of us will have to face. But I want you to listen to the words of Paul, and I'm done, but listen to me carefully. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, so he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. And then it's, this starts getting beautiful. It says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, and destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's coming a day. Let that sink in your mind. There is coming a day where our enemy, death, is gonna be destroyed forever and we will never die again. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name, all oppression shall cease. Let that sink into your heart today. That 2000 years ago in the city of David, there was born for you a savior. But he's not just a savior. He's a chain breaker. He's a soul valuer and he's a death destroyer and he knows your name and he wants to do those for you.